listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. We try so hard to put forward a better us to the world around us. Why do we do that? I would say that when we look at the areas of our lives that bother us, the areas of our lives that we'd say, I can't stand this, I want to change it, it's because we don't feel a sense of control in that area. And who doesn't like to be in control? I believe at the heart of the matter is for us, it's a desire to be more in control of our lives. You spend too much money, you want to be a saver. So you start to focus more and stick to a budget. Then you'll have more financial control. You put things off until the last minute and it drives you nuts, maybe even gets you in trouble with your boss or with your teacher. And so your stress level gets higher and you want to lower that. You want to change that. It's an attempt to control your stress level. Maybe like me, you want to be a little bit less skeptical. You want to show more optimism with people, more patience. And so maybe you want to, in situations or in individuals, show more optimism. You want to be more control of your emotions. You want to be more in control. I want to be more in control. Who doesn't want to be more in control? And yet our sense of control is completely an illusion. The grasp, this grasp at changing yourself, this grasp at trying to gain more control over your life is like a grain of sand on the beach telling the tide it will not be swept out to sea. If you've been to the beach and you walk out into the water and the water sweeps over your feet and you let it sweep back over and you see all of the sand rushing, it's like a grain of that sand being like, "Uh uh-uh, bro, I'm staying right here. Good luck with that. It doesn't work. And that's what we sense when we try to change. We have this inertia, this pull of long time of continually trying to change and fail that seems to just kind of pull us back. What happens is you attempt to be a new you only to find the old you keeps popping up uninvited. And failing to change means that we feel crushed. Our desire to be in better control of our lives is, proves to be really a, just kind of a fabricated control. And once we realize the reality of that, that our reality is not really controlled but fabricated control, we tend to either cower in shame or we pass blame onto other people and still try to portray this self-image to people around us that's completely and utterly false. It's a monotonous cycle of trying to be the new you and the old you just keeps prevailing. The thing is, this is actually common among humans. This is a human condition. Whether you're here today and you believe in God, you'd say you're a Christ follower, or maybe you're skeptical and your New Year's resolution was to actually give God a shot. The the reality is we've all experienced failed change, disappointment, and our lack of control over our own lives, and a sense that we are actually not living the life that we were meant to be living. And that's common among people of all races, of all backgrounds, of all worldviews, of all religions, male, female, we all can see this. And it's at this spot of discouragement and our ability to do better, to be in more control of our lives, that the real Jesus meets us with refreshing and life-changing news. When we look at 2 Corinthians 5, we see that God actually is calling us into the deep yearning that we all have already been made new. We need, what we need is not a yearning to be made new. We already have that. What we need is a better way of being made new. What we need is more, is a more lasting newness that is better than our self-improvement attempts. 
And instead of a new you that's really just kind of an old you with a mask on, God wants to make a new you that's a true you as well. And he has a calling on your life that the old you actually is desiring but can't find it because only the new you can, can see it. Could this make all the difference? Might we have been searching for something real but using an age-old problem to get there, thus leaving us at a dead end year after year after year? A close look at 2 Corinthians five fourteen, it shows us one, the first thing we need to do. We need to relinquish control of our lives. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. This is so un-American. In fact, it's actually just non-human to want to be in control is completely human, completely American, completely the way we're raised. To be let him and his love control us, it's not normal for us. So you can even look at history. If you look at history just without even having to use Google, you can think of multiple times where people tried to be in control both of themselves and others, and it went horribly wrong. Whether it's Napoleon or Nero or maybe the pharaohs of ancient Egypt, um, even look at obviously a Hitler or a Stalin. Even now today, like Kim Jong-un or ISIS, who are trying to exert their control over others, it ends badly. Now, you may be here and be like, well, of course, that's clearly I'm not that bad. You just call me ISIS. Um, What I would say is look at your own life. When I look at my life, no one has done more of an emotional damage or made more bad decisions that have directly affected me than I have. As uh, This might date me a little bit, but as the uh, song from 1999, last century, uh, lit, says, I am my own worst enemy, and it's true. I am my own worst enemy. We all, attempting to control our lives and believing we know best, have caused ourselves more turmoil than anyone else has. When I ran off to college, I actually drove off, but when I came to college in 1998 at Arkansas State, I was three hours away from home. I was a preacher, still am, a preacher's kid. Um, which you can't trust those most of the time, but I was, I was a good one. Uh, when I came to college, I had basically said, you know, I've been a good kid all my life. It's time for me, and it really hasn't got me anywhere. Um, so it's time for me to kind of sow my wild oats. So I came to college, and I dove straight into the fraternity and college life. I was the social chairman of my fraternity for two years. I knew people in all of the Greek life. Uh, I felt like I was somebody. Um, I was able to date girls that for some reason I couldn't date in, in high school. And I thought, hey, this is life, man. I'm living. But what's interesting is that I was never really that happy. And by my junior year of college, I came home uh, for Thanksgiving to let my parents know, uh, literally like Sunday night before I drove home uh, to, to get ready for finals, that the girl that they met about nine months, I mean about three months before, one time was going to be the mother of their first grandchild. Uh, I came home two weeks later after finals to say, Owen, I just lost my scholarship because I skipped music and they threw a 100-point pop quiz. Who does that? But anyway, <laughs> so I lost my scholarship. I'm going to be a dad, even though you've only met this woman once. Happy holidays. That was, for me, a moment where I realized, man, I'm, I've, I've been miserable Now, it's almost in my face just how miserable it is and how me trying to control my life and go, this is life, this is where it's found, I landed there. And it's interesting that my belief that God is holding out on me, like he's he's literally saying, I want you to have no fun. 
that that belief is not new. That's actually an age-old belief. We can go all the way back to the earliest recorded human history in Scripture in the Garden of Eden and see that the quest for human control has fractured everything. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God made, created the world in sweet harmony and in peace. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all present at creation, were creating out of the overflow of joy and submission to one another. Thus, the final word of creation is that it's very good. And yet, you flip one page over in your Bibles, and God, giving Adam and Eve one thing to obey, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they decided that the more they knew, the better. The more they could control and not have to trust God with all of the details, the better. And now what we see is this grasp at control fractured the creative order down to its very core. Creation was now broken and given over to decay and death. And through God, and though God was gracious as not to kill Adam and Eve right on the spot, and he did promise a redeemer to come, he also did banish them from his presence. He banished them from the garden. And this act of treason against the God of the universe resulted in a devastating separation from God. And we still see and feel the effects of that power grab. In fact, we reenact the power grab daily. Instead of trusting God with our lives, we try to snatch control from him. It's at the heart of what scripture calls our flesh. Hands down, the biggest problem with the human condition is this separation from God caused by us wanting to be the God of our lives. Therefore, Scripture says in like Romans 5.10 that we are actually born enemies of God. It says in Ephesians 2.3 that we are children of wrath. And nothing that we can do will fix the problem. There's not enough money. There's not enough education. You can't be enlightened enough. You cannot practice enough religion to, to basically bring the separation to a close. We are separated from God. We were designed to love God and walk in communion with God. But instead, we reject God and we're separated from him. We were designed to serve others and place their needs ahead of our own, outdoing one another in honor. But instead, we're self-serving. We're always looking out for number one, which is basically ourselves. We were designed to trust God with our lives, our trials, our heartaches, and our joys. Trusting him as a child would trust a good father But we doubt God's love for us and his care for us. And we try to control our lives the way we see best. Our outright rebellion from the Garden of Eden has basically gone onward to today and has severed humanity from God's presence. And we are born estranged from God. The throne of our hearts made for God alone is now occupied by a perpetual cycle of false gods that promise you good and leave you burned over and over again. So how do we get out of this cycle? Well, according to Paul, it's to relinquish control of our lives, not just to God, but to the love of Christ. Look again at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for who their sake died and was raised. To be under the control of Christ sounds fantastic, but how do we get there? You have to die. 
Happy New Year. (laughs) But seriously, the only way to stop grasping at control or having false God after false God after false God controlling our lives and instead be controlled by the love of Jesus is through death. Now, dying is how we're made new. Paul is not talking about our physical death. He's speaking here figuratively and representatively. When Jesus physically did die on the cross and was raised to life, that was as a representative for us. He was what the Bible calls our substitute. He lived the life we could never live in complete submission to God's control, and he died the death we deserved to die. And God then raised him from the dead. Jesus died and was raised. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Now, Jesus, who is alive today, offers us a way out of our old and sinful lifestyle. His offer is not to help us be a better person or a little less wicked. He offers us death and new life. He offers us to join him by faith in the grave and then in new life. That's how Paul gets to the astounding and amazing and earth-shattering promise, and that's not overstated, of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Look at at verse 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's read that again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Are you kidding me? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's notice three aspects of this promise because the reality is most of us would say that is amazing. I mean, I, like I said, my dad's a pastor. I've grown up in church. I've grown up reading the Bible. Um, and yet, and I've read this. And I've always been like, man, that's awesome. But at the same time, it's never really felt like a reality. But there's three things about this verse that I find really interesting for us that I want to look at. First, it's its availability. Second, I want us to look at its inevitability. And then finally, I want to look at its finality. First of all, it's availability. If anyone. Okay, quick quiz. Raise your hand in here if you are a human being. All right? Some of you didn't raise your hand. We probably should talk later. You qualify then as anyone. It's not just for a certain type of person. It's anyone. It's not just the rich. It's not just the poor. It's not only for the educated. It has nothing to do with your political affiliation. This is for anyone. Regardless if you were raised in home worshiping Jesus and you were the good kid in high school or you had bourbon in your bottle and you have been on a bender ever since, pedigree is not, is void. Pedigree means nothing. It is for Anyone, if anyone, means being made new can be possible for you. Second, it's inevitable. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is. It's inevitable. Paul doesn't say, if you're in Christ, you might be a new creation. Or if you're in Christ, you know, you're off to a really good start at being a new creation. No, he says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. It's inevitable. So it's not just available for anyone. It's also inevitable for anyone who is in Christ. And the, sec- the third thing I want us to look at is the finality of it. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Passed away. Not asleep, not hibernating. Passed away. It's dead. 
The old you has passed away. You are made new. This is amazing news because that means that you cannot be so bad that God would reverse it back. It's not like God is going, McCallum, man, I really thought when I made you new, this was going to work out better than this, but I'm going to have to take you back to the old you. That doesn't happen. That's not a conversation going going on between the Trinity. It is done. It is final. It is finished. The old you is passed away. That is amazing. The new has come. Praise be to God. How can this be true? Well, the key is the phrase, in Christ. All of this, the invitation to anyone, the inevitability, and the finality of being made new is because of the one making you new. When Jesus is the one making you new, then you can bet that the new you will be the real you, not because of you, but because of the one who's at work in you. The New Testament is littered with implications of us being in Christ. For instance, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. In Christ, all shall be made new. How about Galatians 3, 26? In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Or Ephesians 2, 13. In Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Being in Christ means that all that is true about Jesus is true about you. That's what baptism signifies. It's our identifying with Jesus in death and identifying with him in his resurrection. And what this passage in 2 Corinthians is telling us is that once you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That being in Christ means that he has covered your sin, he's covered your shame, he's covered your guilt, he's covered your control issues, your rebellions and doubts and fears and impatience. He's covered it all, your sinful indulgences, you name it, he has covered it. And if you are in Christ, he has covered all the characteristics of the old you because he took them upon himself on the cross and buried them in the grave. It has been covered by Christ if you are in Christ. Christ. Can you get better news than that on New Year's Day? So how do we get in Christ? How does this happen? It's not something you work for. Good news for that. Being able to be in Christ is a gift. God took you, us, who were outside of Christ, and by faith he has put us in Christ. Look at verse 18. All this is from who? All this is from who? God, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Wow, despite all the things you don't like about yourself, despite all the things that I don't like about myself, things that you wish you could control, areas of your personality or of your life that you wish you could change, the thing that we need more desperately than anything changed is the separation from God. God is the source of life. God is the source of everything good. The psalmist says that at his right hand are pleasures forever. And we've been separated from that. We desperately need to be reconciled to God and that is exactly what Jesus made possible. And it's this change in position, this being in Christ by grace that actually changes our relationship to God from rejected to reconciled. 
which ultimately is what makes us new. And people are yearning for a message of change and reconciliation. Just look, and this is not a political, so take a, take a deep breath. Um, this is not a political thing. But if you look at the last two people that have actually won the Oval Office, it's interesting. In 2008, uh, I think we got a picture. Barack Obama ran with this campaign slogan, Change We Can Believe In. Change we can believe in. It's telling because at first it insinuates that there's a change that you can't believe in. And there's a change that you can. And deep down, it's not really that surprising because we are skeptical of people promising us change. Because we've had enough experience with empty promises of change through our whole life. A lot of them made by us to others and to God. However, this candidate claimed to offer the type of change that you can believe in. And he was con- and it convinced enough Americans that he won 2008 election pretty easily. And he won again in 2012. Now, just last year, which is true because it's 2017 now, uh, Donald Trump ran a different spin on change, but it was effective nonetheless. Make America great again. That was his spiel. It was everywhere. T-shirts, hats, signs, Arkansas, everywhere. It caught on fire. It was everywhere. And this was a message not necessarily of a new change, but actually more of a reverting back to the good old days. Let's change our country back. Despite many voters even saying they didn't even really like the guy, they voted for him because of this message of change. People are clamoring for change. Anything that they think might make their lives better, make them better people, make it more comfortable, they want change. And whether you like either of these candidates at all, it's clear that our country indeed was so eager for change. People all over the world look at systems in place and they cry out, for change. They cry out injustice. And in a democracy like ours, we have the ability to put a vote where we think the change will most likely occur. Yet here we have Jesus, the king of the universe, promising real change that you can count on. He's not going to make America great again. He's going to make creation great again. By not going back to the good old days, Jesus is actually promising to renew the creation that we broke and is starting in the hearts of his people, right in the midst of the old creation. And it's a message of hope because Jesus has come to fix our biggest problem, our worst condition. He's bridging the gap between humanity and God. He is enabling the rejected of God to be reconciled to God. And once we are made new, once we are made new by Jesus, he is sending you and I out into the world with this message of reconciliation. What an amazing message to be entrusted with. So we have this promise of being made new, and we have this promise that we can be reconciled to God. Yet here we live in this world that is still broken, decaying, and dying. If you read later on, we don't have time to do it now, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul spent the earlier portion of the chapter discussing the fact that we live in a body that's dying, and we wait our eternal glorified body. He actually refers to our body now as a tent. I mean, what is more, um, sub, you know, just susceptible to everything bad, weather-wise, everything in a tent. And that's what we live in. And yet, he's talking about also in the future that God will bring a new heavens and a new earth. So what's the deal with the conversation right now? Like, why new creation now? If we're in a tent and then God ultimately will renew everything in the end, what is the deal about new creation now? When Jesus came to earth, which we just celebrated at Christmas, and lived a perfect life as a substitute for us and died the death that we deserve to die. 
and being raised to life in his first in the in the first excuse me glorified resurrected body a new creation intruded in the middle of the old one in the middle of this dying creation a new creation dawned there was an overlap as it were between an old creation and the new think about it like this we celebrate new year's day and make our New Year's resolutions, and we have all these hopes of new me and new you in January. January. Have you looked outside today? We celebrate a new year, a new beginning, new potential in the dead of winter. Have you considered how ironic that is? We don't have New Year's Day. We should have New Year's Day on April 1st. When grass is turning green, and trees are budding, and flowers are blooming, and birds are singing... It would mean, I mean, it would obviously make sense too because we've already talked about how every self-attempt at renewal is a fool's errand anyway. So April Fool's Day and New Year's Day, it's perfect. We should, we should lobby for that. But nonetheless, New Year's Day is in January. And honestly, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Right here in the middle of winter when everything is dead and dreary, we're trying to aspire and celebrate to newness in life. It's ironic, yet it's actually a picture of reality. It's a picture that the deadness of this broken world set on being in control and rejecting God's rule and reign, his kingdom of renewal is actually going on right in front of us. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, which began on earth 2,000 years ago and has been spreading like wildfire ever since. Paul tells us that while we don't work to get in the kingdom, we have work to do once we're in the kingdom. God does not just make us a new creation without a purpose. He sends us out with this amazing message of reconciliation. God sends us out with this message, namely that though you are separated from God, it can be reversed. The curse can be reversed. And in verse 20, Paul lays out the new creation mandate for us. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, I love the strength of that word, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors carrying a message. An ambassador represents a sovereign in another land. The U.S. ambassador represents the United States and our interests in whatever country they are sent to. We represent King Jesus. And we represent him in this world with this message This dying world that says, hey, in Christ, God will not count your trespasses against you. You can be made new by being reconciled to God. It's amazing. And yet we all sit here and think, okay, if you would claim to be a Christ follower, and you were to take, like when we were young kids, maybe if you're still in school, you're taking these true-false quizzes. And you have a true false quiz in front of you and you claim to be in Christ, you claim to be a disciple of Christ and the statement reads, the old has passed away, the new has come, T-F. We're over here going, hmm, can I circle them both? Because a lot of the times I feel conflicted. Where is the disconnect? Jesus is going to come right over there and go, no, that, that's a T right there, bro. That's a T, that's true. And we're going, well, I don't feel it. Where's the disconnect? Why do we sit here today and feel like, man, I see that. Like, I, I see the scripture. I believe in the authority of scripture. I see that God is telling me, man, I, mean, I am new, but I don't feel it at all. Well, I would say that by looking at my life alone, 
there's probably multiple factors. But I want to close as we I want to close talking about three possibilities. Could be more, but these are the three I want us to consider today. First, and maybe the most obvious, is that maybe you're not a new creation. I don't say this to scare you. It's not my aim. But I do say this because I think it's important that we examine ourselves. Are you in Christ? How would I know? Well, try this. Think about it like this. When you, re- when you relate to God, when you think about praying, when you think about him in general and the way he maybe perceives you, looks at you, do you find yourself constantly going through a mental checklist of whether or not you're good enough to approach him today? Do you think to yourself, man, I screwed up. Um, I'm not sure if I could call, him, call out to him. This, this actually could be you still trying to control your life. Instead of accepting God via grace, by faith, and Jesus' substitutionary death on your behalf, absorbing the wrath from sin, for sin that you deserve to absorb yourself, you're trying to measure up to him on your own accord. On days that you've read your Bible, maybe you like rocked it out to Caleb on the way to work, you feel like you can approach his throne with boldness. Yeah, Natalie Grant, yo, I'm ready to go. But then on days that maybe you struggle with anger or frustration or lust or envy, then it's like, hmm, I don't know. I don't know, Lord, I might need to take a break. You might not want to see me today. You may not be a new creation. You might just be religious. If that's you, it's possible that this is a sign that you've not, that you've not truly trusted Christ as your substitute, but rather your get-out-of-jail-free card in the event you might actually end up needing it. But you might be on the other side of the coin, too. You may not actually be a new creation because to you, God's forgiveness of your sins was not costly in your eyes. It could be that you're experiencing the old nature popping up over and over and over again because you never really actually repented of your sin. In your eyes, your sin's not that big a deal to God, in 2 Corinthians 5 shows just how costly grace was. It cost Jesus his life. He had to be sin for us on the cross and absorb the wrath that you and I deserve, that we deserve for our sin. So maybe instead of, instead of feeling like you are unworthy of God and approach via, gra- via works, you're actually approaching him via a cheap grace. A grace that costs him nothing. That costs you nothing. And maybe you just don't even think you're required to die to yourself. And so you haven't actually encountered the real Jesus. If you're in either of these boats, I'm not saying that you're not a new creation. Please hear me. I'm not saying you're not. But what I'm saying is that it's possible. And I love you enough to ask you to examine your heart. Feel free to come chat with me or one of the pastors or your MC leader if you're in a missional community to dig a little deeper about what might be going on. So that's a possibility. Maybe, maybe you're not actually a new creation. And that might be why it seems like it's such a far reality to you. A second possibility, though, is that you actually are a new creation in Christ. But this was something that you trusted in for basically your eternal salvation, but not your satisfaction. As we say a lot around here, um, Jesus is not only interested in your afterlife, he's interested in this life. Jesus is not only here for your salvation, he's here for your satisfaction. 
And he not only wants to save you, he wants to satisfy you. If you realize your need for Jesus to cover your sin, to take your trespasses upon himself, and to not count them against you, but, only look to, but you only look to him as salvation for sin, and not to defeat sin that is in you, you're going to have a hard time. You're a new creation, but you're really not trusting him with the everyday aspects of life. And you're looking for the power to fight sin, but you can't find it. It's not in me. It's not in you. It's not in Jared or Adam or Luke. The power to fight the sin that Romans 7 tells us will war against our new nature is from a daily encounter with the real Jesus. Through the presence of his spirit, through the power of his word, through the prayer of dependence and faith. Those are the weapons he gave us. And those weapons will not be thwarted, but we have to use them. We're reminded actually in Philippians where Paul says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But he doesn't stop there. He actually says we work it out with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So for you, maybe that it's that while you're objectively, you are a new creation, but you think about God only wanting your afterlife and not desiring to be intimately involved in your daily life so that you can actually get afterlife with good pleasure and delight. So that could be you. Finally, a third possibility is that you are a new creation in Christ. You actually are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, but you're not sensing any delight or that God is getting any pleasure in being your father. You realize that it is by grace that you're saved, but your disciplines of daily time with him are waning because the joy that you once had in your walk with him has been thwarted by this decaying, and broken world. Maybe it was a mistake you made or multiple mistakes you made in your life, maybe in the past, maybe this week, maybe recent. And Satan is here reminding you, trying to rob you of your joy, trying to remind you, hey, look at the old you. It's so there. The old you is just right below the surface, Nathan. Don't try to get acting like you're a new creation. We all know you're not. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's a tragedy. That has result that is a result of a broken world, the death of a relationship, the death of a family member, a kid that's running away, that's that's wayward. Maybe it's that. And maybe because of that, your suffering your, your suffering in that has brought some more experiences of the cold, dead winter of January than the new celebratory aspect of January in your life. Maybe it's that you've taken your eyes off Jesus. And so what once was a delight for you has now become duty only. And you feel guilt for it being duty and not delight. And you feel more like the old you than the new you. Honestly, that's where I am. That, that's where I fall. The last year for us as a family has been a roller coaster. We have a six-month-old, and we lost my father-in-law in the same year. My discipline in the daily encounter with the real Jesus has waned inconsistently, significantly. And when I have been seeking to encounter him, it's been more out of duty than delight, without a doubt. That's somewhat normal. Like, there's going to be seasons. It's not always going to be mountaintop, yeah, awesome, camp, you know, camp experiences. But for me, what, what has kind of triggered my, um, my awareness that, there, that there's a problem, that it's become more duty and delight is because there's no joy. My joy has waned. My desire for him has waned. I feel like the old me is trying to make a comeback, and I'm telling him, dude, you're dead. 
I remind him, you're dead. And working through this passage this week has been so refreshing for my spirit. It's been so good, but I need to press on. We need to press on. That's where I am. So I don't know where you land this morning, but wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, I want to close with you considering this. Paul, that was an amen by my six-month-old, by the way. <clears throat> Paul wraps up 2 Corinthians 5 with a beautiful synopsis of what took place on the cross of Christ. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By the way, on a side note, if you're not really sure how to share the gospel, you can just memorize this sentence. It's a great start. It's a beautiful passage that lets, you, that lets people understand, okay, I have a problem, but for my sake, Jesus basically took my place and that I receive his righteousness. It's beautiful. So do something for me. This may be a little awkward and this may expose my Baptist roots, but let's close our eyes for a minute. And if this is tripping you out, don't sweat it. I actually did it myself in Starbucks, getting prepared. They said I could come back in 2018, so it's all good. <laughs> Close your eyes for a second, and, and I want you to, I'm going to just kind of talk to you a little bit, just a little bit longer, and then I want you to repeat something here at the end after me. Paul says in verse 21, the purpose of Jesus taking our place on the cross and bearing our sin was so that we might become the righteousness of God. In one sense, we are new creations, and yet the moment we trust Christ for salvation, but yet in another sense, we are becoming new. We are becoming the righteousness of God. We are working out our salvation. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. We are growing in Christ's likeness so this we can all basically breathe in here. It's okay. No one's going to be perfect. We should all be maturing, but it would happen at different speeds. The Christian life is not a one-size-fits-all experience. What is constant is that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and yet simultaneously you're being made new. Earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us how we become new, which he equates to basically becoming new, being transformed into the image of God. Listen to what he says. Let me just speak this over us. Listen to what he says in verse 18 of chapter 3. And we all, with unveiled face, meaning nothing is prohibiting us from viewing God's glory, we all from unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul grants us that being transformed into a more complete image bearer of God is a process. It happens from one degree of glory to another, but it happens nonetheless by beholding the glory of the Lord. So how do we do that? We look at Jesus. Whether you're here today and you've never fully trusted Christ in faith for salvation or are, and still are estranged from God, or you, really, you only really trusted Christ for eternal salvation, but not satisfaction or joy in this life, or if you're here struggling with duty and life with God as being a delight, Paul would tell all of us that we're in the same boat in the sense that we need to behold the glory of the Lord. And nowhere is the glory of the Lord more evident than on the cross, his subsequent resurrection. On the cross, we see both the intense wrath of God towards sin and the intense love of God to take it for us. So what I want to do 
with eyes, back, or with eyes closed, basically just so you're not distracted, and hearts tuned to the Spirit of God, I want this good news to refresh over you, to wash over you like a, over our dry and parched hearts this morning. And hopefully what it'll do is it'll change us even just one degree, one more degree into the image of God. So I want you to repeat after me. And I don't want you to repeat after me in the sense of loudly. I want you to kind of whisper this to yourself in prayer. We're going to make 2 Corinthians 5 personal. Repeat this after me. For my sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in Jesus, I might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, if I am in Christ, I am a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise be to God. You can open your eyes. New creation individuals, which is what you are if you're in Christ, also collectively make a new creation people. Living in Paragold, for us living in Jonesboro, and beyond. I know there are people here that travel from other places. New creation individuals make a new creation people. And a new creation people bringing the message of reconciliation to a broken people, a people separated from God, is actually what this church was planted for. Jesus says in Revelation, I am making all things new. So let's join him in that. Amen?